And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host, our guest author, Father Robert J. Altier. God's Plan for Your Marriage, published by Sophia Institute Press, available through our EWTN religious catalog, of course, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. Great to meet you, Father. Great Good to, to have you, you on the God program. You. Thank uh, you. People remember a few months back, uh, you were on with Jim and Joy. Uh, on their program and uh, and uh, talking about this. Is this the first book you've written? It is. It's, uh, I actually have dyslexia, so I never planned on writing a book. But uh, So when did you discover that you had dyslexia as a kid? It wasn't until probably I was in college really? that I understood what it was. You know, it was just a very frustrating thing all the way through school, but uh, but when I finally understood what did it was. Did you have a lot of trouble with math? Usually dyslexia. For, uh, I have so transposition problems, right, yeah, right. so, yeah, so I actually math. have one of my minors in college was in accounting, which was very frustrating. Right, yeah, I can imagine. So God's plan for your marriage. Okay, maybe he has one for people, but you're not married, and so why are you writing a book about marriage? Well, first of all, to understand this isn't a how-to book. This is, this is basically looking at the spiritual foundation of the marriage. You know, I, in the book I would point out there are really four areas of marriage that people can look at. They can look at the relationship, they can look at communication, they can look at the physical area, but the foundation of the whole thing is the spiritual part, and that's the part that right. tends to not to get addressed. Do you think and, people focus too much on the kind of the mechanics, saying, you know, we hear a lot about, I think it's pretty well from Marriage Encounter on, uh, the idea of communication. Communication mm -hmm. is really important. We have communication. But what's interesting, like you pointed out in your book, is you say those things are really good, but you need that spiritual foundation. Mm -hmm. Well, the other things don't matter, do they? Well, it's, I, I say it's, it's like, okay, you can put a new roof on your house, but if the foundation is crumbling, what good is your new roof going to be? If the house is going to fall. And, and so those other things are good. Mm -hmm. They're important, in fact, critical. But if you don't have the foundation, you're not going to have the fullness of what you're really looking for in your marriage. Now, in the forward, uh, Dan and Stephanie Burke mentioned this, and you mentioned it later in the book, the idea of Sister Lucia's uh, discussion about the, the letter to, to the cardinal. Mm -hmm. Father, a time will come when the battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan will be over marriage and the family, and those who work for the good of the family will experience persecution and tribulation. But do not be afraid, because Our Lady has already crushed his head. Now that is, seems to be crystallized in the world we live today, doesn't it? Exactly, and that's why, you know, the, I, what I look at with this book, I just say, I believe this is, is heaven's response to the crisis in marriage, mm -hmm. uh, because it's, it's got lots of new insights uh, that, that, that I've never thought mm -hmm. of or heard of before, and just some jaw-droppingly beautiful things, I think, about the marriage relationship, right. and, and, and again, that, that foundation, how to protect your marriage against what's going on in the world right now. Now, uh, in here it says, a man who has faced down, talking about you, the demons that afflict marriage, he knows all the tactics of the enemy and the corresponding tools, perspectives, we need to be set free. Do you think there's a particular demonic focus on marriage today? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, the devil's not stupid. He knows that marriage is the foundation for the church and society, and so if he can destroy marriage, mm -hmm. he destroys both the church and society simultaneously. And, and so, so this is, you know, even as Sister Lucia had said, this, this is the, the, the attack right now. I look at it as throughout history, you know, the devil has attacked various mm -hmm. things. This is, I think, the worst because it's foundational. It's one thing right. to go after the priesthood or to go after the Trinity or whatever it may be, but 
but to go after the family, right. that's going to destroy our children or at least you know, you know, cause a lot of trouble for our children if things aren't solid and right. stable in the family. Then that becomes the next generation to raise children and if they don't have that foundation, you know, what, what hope do we have in the future? Well, one of the things you, you make a point here about the importance of the procreation aspect of marriage and, in a sense, the, the idea of this tying into the Trinity in, mm -hmm. in, that, in that way. But we live in a world, too, where so many young people today are, are just deciding out front, even though they get married, well, I'm not going to have any children. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, first of all, if they have that intent, there isn't even a valid marriage that's there. Mm -hmm. But it tells you again where the problems are. First of all, marriage is about love, and love is about service, it's giving. And it, to say, well, this is what I want to do, and I'm not going to have children, it says this is about me. And, and marriage is supposed to be about the other. And ultimately, love has to overflow any boundaries you put on it, and it becomes life-giving for others, and that's, that's the nature of, of married life. In fact, the primary end of marriage is the procreation education mm -hmm. of children. Right. And is there a reason that that's so particularly under attack? You think that's demonic? I do. Mm -hmm. I do. It's, and if you look at it even from a, a different perspective, at the foundation of the marriage is the woman. And so the, the devil, of course, he knows he's going to get his head squished by a woman, so he absolutely despises women. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so for a woman to be contracepting, for a woman to be being used and violated and so on, mm -hmm. and not being able to, to have the fullness of, of, of her motherhood and her femininity and, and her womanhood, that, that again is going to affect that woman deeply in her own self-identity. You say, history grants us the insight to know that there are two things of which we can be assured in the aftermath of every diabolical attack. First, the area attacked will be stronger in the end. God brings good out of evil, so marriage and the family will be built up and strengthened or better purified and perfected like gold tested in fire. Second, God will raise up people to write, teach, defend, and develop the doctrines of the church regarding these, this area that is under attack. You see that happening? I do. Uh, we have a, a situation going on right now that has never happened in the history of the church, and that's lay theologians. Mm -hmm. We've always had some here and there, but to have the number of them mm -hmm. that we have, and now both male and female theologians. So when you look at marriage, the perspective of a male and a female are so different, and so for them to be able to write about their own sacrament and, and to, to be able to start really going deep, because marriage it's just always been there. It's mm -hmm. been the foundation. It was never doubted. It was never questioned. So there really hasn't been a lot of teaching developed mm -hmm. about marriage. But now that it's under attack, now it has to be developed. Right. And, and now we have these lay theologians to be able to do that who are living the sacraments and being able to present mm -hmm. that. The sacrament of holy matrimony is a spiritual reality. How so? Well, it's a, the, the, the primary point within marriage is that the two souls of the people are united. There's, there's a new creation, essentially, that happens. It's a, it's a reversal of what happened in the garden. So, so God started with Adam, and then from Adam he made Eve, and then brought the two together. So the fullness of humanity is found only when the man and the woman are united, which is what happens in marriage. So it's not just a contractual agreement, which is what the state would see it as. Marriage is a covenant. And in that covenant, the two souls are actually united, which is why marriage lasts till death. Even if there's a divorce, the two are still united because God doesn't 
allow that to be taken apart. Now you say I had intended to write a book for couples preparing for marriage, instead you wrote a book about marriage. Mm -hmm. Why did you change direction? I assume that the majority of the people that would read the book are married, and even one of the problems that happens with couples preparing for marriage, they just want to get married. Mm -hmm. And you can talk to your blue in the face, <laughs> but they all, it's like, well, we're different, it won't happen to us, we're, you know. So my hope even, I use this mm -hmm. for the couples preparing for marriage, my hope is it'll be sitting on their shelf and in a couple of years they'll actually pull it down when they are right. married and uh, and so so it's it's more practical right. in fact I can tell you the people who are married who have read this they go wow the people who aren't married they say oh that's really good you know, right because they haven't been down that road yet exactly. they, they haven't had those experiences yet uh, and you break down the book in several chapters and you start from the beginning and you were talking about Genesis mm -hmm. just before it did seem a little odd to start to read the book and, and, and recounting you know the creation story why did you start there well, ultimately, Pope John Paul is the one, St. John Paul is the one who had that insight when our Lord said, you know, when they asked him, can a man divorce his wife? And, and, and Moses said it was okay. And Jesus said, this was not God's intention from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so Pope John Paul said, if we want to know God's intention, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to start with Genesis. That's where we see marriage before the sin. What was God's intention? And so that's why I wanted to start there with, with, uh, with be before Adam and Eve fell, and then of course we have to deal with the reality. It's mm -hmm. they've fallen, so have we, and and so now what we're what we're doing. But that is what God's intention was, and that's what we want to strive for as we grow in holiness to become more conformed to what God is looking for. And the second chapter, God is love, and after the fall of Adam and Eve. But since God is love, He forgives everything. So why do we have to worry about these things? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, yes, God forgives, nature doesn't. And so when we sin, we hurt ourselves. And so the sin can be removed, but the effect of the sin remains. And so, so we all have original sin, but we've all sinned a lot ourselves too, and that affects us greatly. So yes, even though the sins are forgiven, we, you know, if we've confessed them and, and, and been forgiven, the effects remain and we have to work to overcome those effects. And again, you see in the, in the third chapter of Genesis, some of the effects of original sin for both the man and the woman and, and their relationship, that's what we have to strive to overcome. You also talk about the separate, I thought it was interesting in the book you were talking about the uh, separating light from dark and you mm -hmm. were talking about how well if the sun wasn't there, how was there light and dark and you really talk about in a sense the fall of the angels. Why mm -hmm. did you bring that up? Well, because first of all, the, right from the beginning, you, you have the, the angels having to make the choice of, of good or evil, and, and you know, Satan and his minions chose the wrong way. But now, because by nature, the, the, the word angel means a messenger. By nature, they are directed toward us. They were the messengers of God for us. Their nature hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And so they are still directed toward us. Unfortunately, now Satan in an evil way. And so that becomes then where the temptations are but we can also learn from, from what they did to learn what we don't want to do. Right, and then you have what God has joined and then new creation, which you kind of alluded to there. Um, and, and then also at the end, the, idea, the banquet of the Lamb. How does, how does marriage and the sacrament of marriage relate to the Eucharist in your mind? Actually, the marriage and the Eucharist are the two sacraments most closely aligned symbolically, obviously on two different levels, but when you look at the Eucharist and what you can say about the Eucharist, 
you can say pretty much the same thing about marriage. It's a covenant. It's a total giving of self. It's the receiving of another. It's mm -hmm. the union of a persons. It's life giving. All the different things that, that are there, mm -hmm. as well as the sacrificial aspect that's there in the Eucharist and, and so on. Jesus giving himself entirely to his bride, the church. The church giving herself right. entirely to Jesus, all these sorts of things. Well, you talk about the, it's not f the old 50-50, it's 100-100. And Correct. I always think about, you know, John Paul with the whole self-donation aspect, mm -hmm. right? Complete total giving of oneself and a complete receiving of the other, which again, when you think about that, when it's 100%, I always tell the couples, that means there's nothing left of you to take back and there's nothing left of the other person to reject mm -hmm. because it was a 100% thing. And, and so the two truly are one in a total and complete self-giving and receiving. Do, do, do you think we're dealing with, with a, a crisis of trust in general in society and so that people are always afraid to totally commit? I would completely agree with that. It's, you know, there's a lot of fear of commitment. There's a lot of fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. And if I open myself up and be vulnerable, which is what you have to do in order to be loved, you have to take the risk that you could be rejected mm -hmm. or you could be loved. And if you can't trust, you're not going to open up, you're not going to be vulnerable, then you can't be loved. You say a point needs to be made here, and this is from the beginning, uh, that cannot be overemphasized. Human nature cannot change, your nature cannot change. Then you go on to say our nature is very good and our dignity is immense. This cannot change regardless of how badly we have, may have violated or may violate uh, ourselves. Why, do you, why are you emphasizing that point? The point of people today think that they're worthless trash. Uh, and they look at, a lot of people look at their sins and they think that, okay, maybe God can forgive me, but I'm still trash, I'm no good, I'm worthless. That's exactly what the devil wants us to think. And so I, I point out in there that if we think that, if you think about when Satan fell, his nature did not change. If his nature didn't change, mm -hmm. his fall is way worse than ours. And our nature cannot change. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And when God looked at what he made mm -hmm. after he created us, he saw that it was very good. Every other, all the other days it was good. Mm. And then he made us, it was very good. And that's the way it still is. On page 23 in your book, in, from the beginning, this is a, Alice von Hildebrand would, would, would have loved this chapter here. Each, each creature God made became more and more perfect, culminating with the creation of the human person. You go on to say the woman, if she was the last being God, made, then it follows she must also be the most perfect or the highest of all the material creatures in creation. Once again, we need to be careful because higher does not mean better or greater. She would say it does, but <laughs> <laughs> what's the point there? How, 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 so, so men just got to admit that women are better? Or? It's not about being better. It's, I mean, men need to recognize the dignity of women and, and to realize that, you know, if I'm going to marry this woman, I want to put her up on a pedestal in my mind. I want to serve her, I want to love her. Mm -hmm. And we can remember that part of original sin, one of the effects is the man is gonna try and dominate over the woman. And so this is what we have to try to reverse and, and to say, no, it's to love her, not mm -hmm. to dominate her. Recognize she is your equal and, you know, and can the woman needs to do the same thing for the man. Put right. him up on that pedestal and serve him because both are looking to, to truly love each other. So the point there is to, to recognize the true dignity of what God has made and to, to respect that dignity and to live it. And uh, you make an interesting point here. Satan makes his way into the garden. This means that Adam had already failed in guarding the garden because a lot of times some people say, well, it was Eve, you know. Mm -hmm. Even Adam tried to blame her, basically. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you make that point that he had already failed. 
to open up the opportunity for this sin. Right, God, you know, when, when if you look in, in the second chapter, God put Adam in the garden to guard it and to till it. And Scott Hahn makes the point that word guard in Hebrew is the same word that they use for prison guard. He's supposed to guard the garden. You say, well, who's he guarding the garden against? Well, against Satan is mm -hmm. what he was supposed to do, and that's where he failed because he was supposed to be protecting his wife, he was protecting the garden, everything in it, and then it was allowed to be, to be violated. Now you did marriage prep and you say uh, in the section, God is love. I used to ask the couples who came to my parish for marriage preparation why they wanted to get married. Almost universally the answer was because we are in love. That's not enough? Well, that's a great answer, but then when I would ask them what that means, they would tell me it's this warm feeling we have when we're together, and you know, they have to say, wait, 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 that's not what love is, and, and you know, yeah, there are emotions that come with love, but love isn't an emotion, it's a virtue, and, and so, so yeah, I, I just stopped asking the question because, because they didn't understand what the answer meant. And uh, you talk about four characteristics of love. Mm -hmm. Your first love is benevolent. You want to go through those? Yeah, so the benevolence is, is goodwill toward one another, mm -hmm. and then it is also reciprocal, so you can't just be in love with yourself. That's narcissist. And, and so you have to, the two are seeking the good of one another. That brings about a communion of persons in that, that total self-giving and receiving, but the foundation has to be a fundamental similarity. So again, you can't be truly have a love relationship with your dog or an ice cream cone or whatever. And so we have that similarity in our, in our humanness. Mm -hmm. We also have love with God, the similarity there being sanctifying grace. Right. And so it is, again comes back to that spiritual foundation for the marriage, which is the grace. Do you think sometimes people would rather have a relationship with their ice cream cone or their dog or something because it doesn't take anything? They don't have to give anything for that relationship. Exactly, and they can right. be in control of it. Right. You know, right. love is out of control. I mean, you can't control what somebody's going to give you. Right. You can control what you're going to give them but you can't control what you're going to receive. You say, one might wonder how we can have a relationship with God since we lack fundamental similarity. The answer is sanctifying grace. Now there's a phrase I don't think I've heard since high school. The sanctifying <laughs> is that grace still life. around? <laughs> it, it is, sanctifying grace is still the life of God in our souls. So. <laughs> Truth hasn't changed. <laughs> You, you talk about growing in love in, in a relationship, and you, and you say, you pose the question, what if your spouse does not want to, to grow in love? So, so what do you do then? Well, what that does is actually, it's, you know, there are two ways of being able to grow in holiness, and one I say is the, the positive way and the negative way. The positive way is helping one another, growing in love, building one another. The other is to become so horrible and such a jerk that your spouse has to become a saint just to live with you. Mm -hmm. Well, so if the other one doesn't want to grow in love, that allows the other person actually an opportunity to really become a saint mm -hmm. by continuing to try to love this person who isn't loving them in return and, and to, to continue to serve because that's, that's what was promised to God right. on the day you got married. Right. And obviously it's supposed to be a two-way street, but if it isn't, right. you still are responsible for your half. Right, it doesn't mean you're entitled to bail. Right, I see. Or because this person's treating me this way, then I'll just treat them the treat same them way. Treat them the same way, uh, exactly. Saint John of the Cross, great quote: "Where there is no love, put love, and there will be love." Mm -hmm. And so that's right. So again, if if the marriage if it's fallen out of love, then you have the opportunity to bring that love back into it mm -hmm. by praying for this person and striving to serve the person and love that person. You know, I would always say. Think of if everything was the way you would really want it to be in your relationship, 
how would you be treating this person? Treat them that way anyway, even though it's not all the way you want it to be. Right. And you say, if it is not hard enough to overcome our own propensity for selfishness, we live in a society that is almost totally self-centered. The most self-centered society in history. So, right. so again, the love is opposite of selfishness. So if we were to grow in love, everything in our society is pulling us the other way. Mm -hmm. So it makes it even harder to love again, but that right. allows us then to become even greater saints. Married couple, married people must understand this. On the day of judgment, they will not be responsible for how well their spouse lived out their marriage vows. They'll be responsible for how well they themselves lived out their marriage vows. Exactly, same point. Doesn't matter if you're, I mean, it does matter, but if your spouse isn't doing what he or she should be, you're still responsible to make sure that right. you're doing what you promised to God and to that other person you would do. I look at this image you have. Hell, on the other hand, is pure selfishness. Everyone there is absolutely selfish. Every person in hell hates every other person in hell. Yeah, <laughs> people have this weird idea, hell's gonna be a party and all my friends are gonna be there. Right, and it's right. like, first of all, get some new friends, but number two, there will be no friends in hell. Mm -hmm. they, it's just everybody is purely selfish. Mm -hmm. and in heaven, it's all love. Mm -hmm. So that's what marriage is supposed to be. It's a prefiguration of heaven. And, and it's supposed to be about love. You say, it should also be noted that suffering, if accepted and cooperated with, opens our hearts. And you say, the goal of marriage, according to the vows, is to have a perfect capacity of love. Yes, we, as long as we're alive, we can grow in love. So the heart keeps opening, but through the suffering, that's where we have to push even harder to be able to open the heart, because our natural inclination when we're suffering is to pull in. So if we can continue to love in the midst of the hardships, mm. that's where we're really able to grow in, in that charity. One of the practical things uh, that gets talked about many times in marriage has, has to do with communication. You say it's imperative for you and your spouse to communicate your needs to each other, not selfishly, but to help you both know and love each other better. Right, as males and females, we think completely differently. And males treat women like it's another male, women treat men like it's another woman and they don't understand and they, they get frustrated because their needs aren't being met. Mm -hmm. So if in charity, to help the other person, here's what I, here's what I, I, I see what you're trying to do, but here's really what I need. And usually if somebody knows what you need, they can meet that need, but if you don't let them know, mm -hmm. they don't have the ability to know what it is you need. You say a married couple fills a void reserved for them in creation. They help to fill the void within each other, but they also contribute to the fulfillment of creation through the gift of children. We talked a little bit about mm -hmm. that earlier. And that's that's another thing which, which is under attack, having children, how many children you're supposed mm -hmm. to have, or not have any children at all. Absolutely, and, and so in, in God's plan of, of creation, he has this intention for each one of us, obviously. He wants us here, but he also wants us to cooperate with him. So for a married couple, the greatest gift is children and, and filling that what, what God's intention in creation mm -hmm. is for that couple and for their children. Right. I like that you said if your marriage relations settled into a routine, you know, God is asking you to practice heroic charity toward your spouse. Look at your spouse and hear Jesus speaking to you from within that person asking, do you love me? And that's, again, if, if you really look at it just falling into the routine, it's like, yeah, I love you, but it's like, but is the relationship growing? Is the love developing? And, and don't just let it fall into a routine. I mean, right. parts of it are, but 
the love has to grow not, and not, not just kind of stay, stay steady. Now, you actually have questions for reflection at the end of each chapter. One of them here is love is a gift, not a reward. Do you think people think love is a reward? A lot of people do. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I, you know, some kids grow up that way. I mean, if I, if I do well in school, then, then my mom will love me or whatever. And so then they, they, they kind of figure that out. It's, and so, and, and we think the same way with God. If I do well enough, then God will love me. It's like, no, God loves you because of who you are, not because of what you do. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about the idea of the, and I can kind of get the husband as a priest, but the wife as an altar. Mm -hmm. Explain that. So with, with that, it's to be able to look at the, the, the baptismal priesthood. Each of us through our baptism is priest, prophet, and king. So how do we live out that baptismal priesthood in marriage? So the man is the, the priest in, in the family. But then how does the woman live that out? Well, she's the altar. That's where the sacrifice takes place, is on the altar. So we're not trying to suggest a woman is likened to a marble right. or, or wooden structure, but rather to look at it in the beauty of it. You know, the Lord, remember, asked which is, which is more important, the gift or the altar that makes the gift holy. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the altar, and that's, that's, where, that's where the sacrifice takes place, literally, in this case, within the woman. And, and that's the holiness right. then of that woman being able to, to do that. That's her gift of her priesthood being united with the right. priest. You can't separate the priest from the altar. So how long did it take you actually to write this book? Uh, about six weeks. About six weeks. How do you write? <laughs> I just sit down and start typing. And because of the dyslexia, I think I use the backspace key almost as frequently as I use the space bar. And so it's... You uh, ever try doing it auditorially or...? I don't know that it would work mm -hmm. um, because I'm, as I write, the, the ideas are coming Come. to mind and how I explain it and so right. on. And so, so yeah, it's uh, so I'm not I, I'm not by nature a writer. Mm -hmm. I never thought of myself as an author, but this seemed to be what was coming out of prayer that that our Lord wanted. And, and so, so, was this a sacrificial act for you? <laughs> well, God's got a sense of humor, so <laughs> so it was actually written during Lent. So the right. busiest time of the right. year when we have no time, it's like this is what He wants, do it. And so, so yeah, so it was it was very difficult in in the sense that, again, being dyslexic, it was a pain. Right. And then during Lent, it was uh, added a whole different dimension to it. Well, successfully done. Thank you so well, much. God bless you, uh, Father Robert J. Altier. God's Plan for Your Marriage. Boy, do we need it now. Available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. I'm Doug Keck. This is Bookmark. We'll see you next time. Thanks.